Oh, what a pleasure it is to be welcoming you to the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, you'll hear Paul's interview with Ellen Kay, a singer you should keep your eyes and ears tuned to. Ellen Kay describes herself as a nightclub singer. She's also the owner of the restaurant Moscow 57 in New York City. Her love for music and the restaurant business, ooh, it's a deep one. You see, from 1947 to 1996, Kay's family operated and owned the Russian Tea Room, the famed Manhattan Russo Continental Restaurant. Scenes from many iconic films were shot in the restaurant, including Tootsie and the Woody Allen film Manhattan, When Harry Met Sally, and many others. Ellen Kay is also a recording artist who has released three albums. As a performer, she sings not only at her own restaurant, but also at celebrated New York venues such as the Metropolitan Room and the Iridium Jazz Club. Hey, before I forget, I want to tell you, the Paul Leslie Hour relies on the support of you, the listener. The show needs people to tune in, which we thank you for. And you can also donate. No amount is too small or too large. Just log on to www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. And right now, in advance, I thank you, everyone who's contributing. Now, what do you say? It's time to get into the interview. Ellen Kay, in interview on the Paul Leslie Hour. Let's begin now. Our special guest is Ellen Kay. It's a great pleasure. Hi, Paul. It's wonderful to be on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Who is Ellen Kay? Oh, God. <laughs> it's so early in the day. <laughs> uh, let's see. I guess I'm a I'm a nightclub singer, and I'm also uh, I'm a hybrid. I'm a, I, I'm a bit of a strange animal because I grew up in the restaurant business, and I happen to love that as much as I love the music. So I've been doing both. My family owned the restaurant tea room from 1947 to 1996. My my actually my grandfather had restaurants before the craft of 29. So I've been doing both, working in restaurants and singing in boîtes all around the. Oh, you know, just up, you know, all around the tri-state area, and and raising my son, who just went, I actually went off to college, so I kind of that's the definition of, of who I am. Tell us your memories of growing up in the restaurant business. Oh well, I, you know, it was such an amazing. First of all, it was an amazing time in New York. So I, I missed the fifties, which and the forties, which would have been really fantastic. Um, but by the time I came along, someone like one of my dad's best friends was Zero Mostel, who. <laughs> would, in the summers when my dad wasn't making as much money, would actually, one day he came in and my father was, well, I'll keep it clean, but they all, you know, cursed like sailors. And uh, he hears my father, like, kind of head in his hands, screaming, you know, I don't have the money to pay the laundry bills. And Zero kind of, I don't know if you know how, if everyone remembers how quite big he was, but he, he could move very, like a panther. So he kind of gets up on tiptoe and, like, tiptoes out into the street through the revolving doors, my father, unbeknownst to my father, who's still, like, crying and cursing in the back, <laughs> gets on his knees 
and starts to cry to the people in the streets with giant crocodile tears and shaking his hand saying, please, please come into the Russian tea room. Sydney needs you. Sydney needs you. So, of course, people start gathering around him, and then my father realizes that he goes out and tries to drag him back in. And that was like a regular kind of thing that would happen. (laughs) Because they were all nuts, and they were, you know, very creative people. We're basically living at the tea room. Sidney Poitier was was actually a dear friend. I mean, it isn't quite the way that people think of a lot of things today where it's more hype and, you know, there aren't necessarily always real relationships. These people were really close, and my father helped a lot of people out during the McCarthy era. He was feeding a lot of people that were blacklisted, and so... There was just a real camaraderie. You know, that's a little bit of it, of what it was like. <laughs> I don't know how much of that you want. But, you know, we, you know, we had it for 49 years. There's a lot of great stories. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? Well, I was really lucky because my mom, who also, you know, when my dad died in 67, my mom ran the tea room for another 30 years. She had a wonderful taste in music. So from infancy, I was listening to... Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, a lot of Frank Sinatra, quite a bit of Tony Bennett, actually. And a lot of, I love Judy Garland and Maurice Cavalier and and, and a lot of Fred Astaire, who I don't think people really listen to anymore, but I really love Fred Astaire. And so those are all the, and much more than that, I mean, Morgana King, my mom, you know, was passionate about music and, you know, it went with the martinis at cocktail time, so... The smell of vermouth, which I wasn't as fond of, would waft across the room with all of the great Jopim, you know, just Stan Getz. I mean, the best stuff was always playing. And I guess I, I took it in. When it comes to singing a song yourself, what is it you're looking for in a song? Since I don't write, or at least I don't write yet, there's people all around me that are, believe that that's something that I can do, but um, I, I really interpret. I'm always first looking for without sounding really cliche about it, but I'm I'm looking for a visceral, you know, a real connection to the lyrics. It has to start there because there's so many songs in the world and I feel like if you can't pull the song away from me, like if you if you pretended like a song was a towel and you tried to wrench it out of my hands, well then that's a song I, I'm gonna do, right? You know, if it can't be cut from a gig, if it can't be cut from an album, I have to feel like that about the tune. So I guess in a sense, and I'm always changing my music because it has to represent the different, whatever thing is going on in my life. So it's always autobiographical on some level. So that's what I start with, is a a lyric that I can really connect to. And it doesn't always have to be necessarily as personal in the sense that I connect to it because it's about something that's happening in my life directly, but it could be about something that I feel strongly about. And But then I do a lot of humorous stuff, so <laughs> I like to do something that make me really laugh. I do Cab Calloway's Chicken, and I do a tune called Vodka. Those are from an, another time, but they are, they're just really fun, and you can't help laugh when you're singing them, and usually the audience is really laughing, too. So I guess it's a it's a mix, and I love blues because you can really, you know, you can be angry and funny, and I, I love to do old Dinah Washington blues particularly. It changes all the time. I mean, I love Bruce Springsteen's Meeting Across the River. That, I don't know, it really, that song for a lot of reasons resonates with me. So it, it has to be, it has to be do or die, and that's how I pick them. Would you say the lyric or the melody is what moves you more? Hmm. 
I would say probably 75% of the time I'm first attracted to the lyric. But, like, for instance, there's a Pearl Bailey tune called In the Blue, Blue Grass, and the melody is so beautiful that I've decided, like, I've got to do it. And I think that the lyric will end up being okay, but I don't even care because, I mean, the lyric is good. It's about a man that's gambling. Like, she's losing her lover to the to the horse races. But the melody is so gorgeous. And how little we know. I've been doing that for a long time. I happen to love the lyric, but... I just think that Hoagie Carmichael, Johnny Mercer tune is just, that melody is, is beautiful. So, you know what, maybe it's, I, all right, 70-30. <laughs> but I do think a lot about what the song is about. And, and because I'm a live, well, hopefully I'm a live performer, because if I start being a dead performer, that's going to be a whole other kind of an act. But because I love live entertainment, the storytelling piece of it's really important to me, and that, you know, that you go from one place to another, that we're not, like, kind of, a, it's not static. I like a song that propels you forward emotionally. I guess that would, I would answer it. Lyrics, 70, um, music, 30. You have an album entitled 3 A.M. What is the significance of the title? The full title is actually 3 A.M., The Dogs, The Milkman, and Me. 3 A.M. came from the fact that my first album <laughs> from long ago was 2 A.M., and that all comes from the fact that I'm pretty nocturnal. Part of that's a combination of being in the restaurant business, and it always goes late. And part of that is being a nightclub singer, and, and that always goes late. And I find that my, I love the world when it stops kind of, there's a Jackson Brown lyric that says, the world outside is tugging like a beggar at my sleeve. And there's something about when the phone stops and the emails stop around 9 or 10 o'clock at night, I become highly energized. <laughs> and I start to really, I can get more thinking done. There's no interruptions. And I love the quiet and the and the solitude of it. Yeah, I love late night a lot. So the, the albums are about that. And I love to sing late, late, late at night when it's possible. It doesn't always work out that way. But and then when my son was born, that was it was a totally different thing. When they're little, when they're babies like that, you're up in the middle of the night with them, and it's also it's very much of a private world. And on 3 a.m. I do the the Tom Waits to Midnight Lullaby, and that was really about about him and our, our very early days together. And it's just a very kind of delicate, fragile time that doesn't, that exists for just, a, it's such a short moment, but I, I think of it with great love and affection. One of the things about this album is just the diversity of songs, everything from Tom Waits to Hoagie Carmichael. How did you select the songs? It's really a combination of the, of what you were asking from the beginning, how little we know is from to have and have not. And I'm a great fan of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and Hoagie Carmichael's actually playing himself. I mean, he's playing in that in that film. So that's where I first stumbled across that tune and started to fall in love with it. Carly Simon, I actually bought that album when it came out. <laughs> and I've always loved Boys in the Trees and the way that it talks about what it's like to grow up female, which is a, a complicated thing as it is just to be human. So, but she has a particular take on it in that song that I find nuanced and I don't know, I, I really like what she's saying there. So that I started listening to as a teenager and finally got to record it. 100 Years From Today is from my mom playing Lee Wiley around the house and I, that's my favorite version of, of that tune. So I guess they came from all kinds of ways. I mean, I fell in love with Jackson Brown as a teenager. 
you know, I just love his music. I love For Every Man and Saturated Before Using. I do, I do a few actually Jackson Brown tunes. So, um, but it's funny, Doctor My Eyes was not one of my favorite tunes of his. There's other songs that I love like a hundred times more, but what I, what I loved about Doctor My Eyes was the lyric. And I, I don't like this, this thing over and over again about, you know, I love you. You don't love me. You love my sister. You know, you love, I, you know, just, <laughs> <laughs> I like to think about broader topics, but that's not always so easy to do, and it's not always that compelling. I feel that Dr. My Eyes is, is more timely than ever. I think the lyric for that is wonderful, and we slowed it way, da- way up, and so I began to really love the melody when it was slowed down, and that's why that's on the album. And then I've been doing Tom Waits for over 20 years. I've done all Tom Waits shows. I keep thinking I'm going to do a Tom Waits album, but then it never happens. I do a really big, a lot of his tunes. I was going to say a big body of his work, but but mostly the m- mostly earlier stuff. One or two things off of Mule Variations. So Midnight Lullaby is is it fits with the concept of the album, but it's also I just love his music, and so is Saving All My Love, which people think is a Whitney Houston tune, but that's the tune that actually the the Tom Waits tune that the title comes from of the album, which is The Dogs, The Milkman, and Me, because that's the lyric that the song opens with. Tell us about your interpretation of Mary Chapin Carpenter's Why Walk When You Can Fly. Mary Chapin Carpenter, again, I think is a wonderful songwriter, and I love what she's saying in that song. It's Again, it's not about, it's not I love you kind of tune. It's It's a much more philosophical kind of how, you know, how to get up every day and, and I don't know. It all sounds so trite when you boil it down, but the lyrics are really wonderful. And, you know, why walk when you can fly pretty much sums it up. So, I, again, I think it goes back to your questions about how do I pick the lyric, and each one of these songs represents either a very strong emotion or a philosophical passion of mine. And no caviar. Well, I started doing that at the tea room. My mom had created a cabaret series, and I came across the tune No Caviar, and it just made perfect sense to start singing it, and it's a great tune. And that's a Dinah Washington. You also have an album with a kind of winter or Christmas theme. Can you tell us about Ice Wine? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's Ice Wine, and it's Songs for Christmas and Dark Winter Nights. I've always been really conflicted about the holiday season. I think most people are, but I'm half Jewish and half Christian, so... It's always been very, whatever, thwarted, and not thwarted, but yes, I think just conflicted. So when, you know, everyone's saying, hey, how about doing Christmas album? I always go like, oh, you know, I don't know, I don't know. And this year I said, what the heck, but I need to do it so that I can really be excited about it. So I went back to the concept of a side A and a side B, even though you can't do that on a, on a CD. So side A is the Christmas tunes, which are... Again, they have a, they're a very broad, it's from Chuck Berry to, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas. Merry Christmas baby Chuck Berry to have yourself a merry little Christmas and our candy Christmas and that. And then side B is songs for dark winter nights, which is way more my, <laughs> my personality in that sense, which is more of an Ingmar Bergman take on very long nights and kind of how do we all get through this time of year, it always seems so endless, and then suddenly it's it's over. And we've got Hounds of Winter by Sting on there. We've got Cold by Annie Lennox. We have Joni Mitchell's River, 
Yves Define produced and arranged it, and I think he did a terrific job. And Tony Romano produced and arranged 3AM, and they're both terrific musicians, and they both did. I'm really happy with the work that, that they did on those two albums. What is on the horizons with LMK? Gearing up to do a new CD, which has the working title of When I Was a Boy, the Dar Williams tune. And we're going to be exploring the, over the years I've been doing quite a few songs that are written for men, and I like saving all my love to Tom Waits on 3AM, and I, I don't change the pronouns, and I kind of like to sing them as a man. Not, not, as, not as really cross-dressing, cross but... I like to be from that that point of view. So we're going to explore that more in the next CD. And, and that's, that's pretty much what we're up to. What is the best thing about being LMK? Oh, it's so hard to do this about yourself without sounding like a total pompous idiot. I guess I would tell you that I take the word entertainment very seriously. <laughs> I try to, I want you to walk into the gig. You walk in feeling one way. And I feel like it's, if I've done my job, you leave... Maybe transformed is too big a word, but you leave in a completely different head than what you walked in with, and hopefully it's a better one. I think humor is really important, but I also love to sing as soulfully as I'm capable of, so I like to run the whole gamut. I would hope that it would, you know, it would be a really, that you feel that it was an hour well spent when our lives are so short and we have to make these choices how to spend our time. I take it as a great honor when people decide they're going to come to a gig, wherever the heck it is, and I want them to just feel better about being alive. I would say that's what I'm, my goal is. <laughs> that probably sounds too um, too lofty for a, for a saloon singer, but that's how I look at it. My last question is very open-ended. For anyone listening in, what would you say to them? Oh, I guess the first thing... I would say is just that I think the people that are performing live, I happen to be one of them, that I think live entertainment is it's an extraordinary way for people to connect and that all of us need to do everything we can to find ways to make more live music available, affordable, and to keep this, the spirit of music going in this time when the whole music business is upended. How do we all find new and exciting ways to connect with each other? And I would hope that people would come out to support live music everywhere. The only way that it can exist is if people come into the room to sit, to listen to it, the tree falling in the forest thing. If you're not there, then we can't do what we do. And I think it's just an extraordinary, it's extraordinary human endeavor. Every time somebody gets on stage with an instrument, with their voice, with their feet to make a sound. And I, you know, all of us just need to get get up off the couch and put down the potato chips and get out there. And if you can't afford it, then we all, we, as a business, we need to find ways to bring music to the people that can't afford it so that it's not just tiered to the, uh, the upper middle class. I mean, everybody should be able to go and hear live music. That's what I feel. And we're actually, on that note, we're, we're gearing up to open a, a restaurant this year in the theater district, Moscow 57, with live music. And we're going to make it so that it's affordable, so that people can come in and hear all kinds of new performers, people that have been around forever that you're not thinking about. And we're going to put our, what's that expression, you know, money where our mouths are. You know, I'm gonna, we're, we're going to uh, walk the walk. <laughs> so that's what I'd say. 
Ms. Kay, thank you very much for this interview. It's been a pleasure. Mr. Leslie, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's very nice to meet you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.